Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. Or at least things that I think are nuclear weapons. But we'll get into that later. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living, and I'm happy to be joined today over Skype by Dr. Michael C. Horwitz, a professor of political science and the associate director of the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're here because we are going to settle a important question that has been tearing the international relations and nuclear policy community apart. Are dragons more like nuclear weapons or conventional air power? I feel like this question is like, it's like North Korea, then this, then Iran kind of right now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's what's trending on Twitter, I'm pretty sure. So specifically, we're going to be talking about the dragons as portrayed in the book series, A Song of Ice and Fire, written by George R. Martin, and the Game of Thrones television series on HBO, which is currently on its final season right now. We are recording this, I guess, two episodes before the show is over. So if you're listening to this later in the future, that's kind of where we are. So if all of a sudden the dragons start talking and saying things like, I'm actually more like nanotechnology, we didn't know that yet. Um, So that's kind of where we are in the show. So here's what we're going to do to set the stage for this podcast. I want to read a quote from George R. R. Martin from an interview in 2011 with Vulture magazine where George R. R. Martin said, Dragons are the nuclear deterrent, and only Danny has them, which in some ways makes her the most powerful person in the world. But is that sufficient? These are the kinds of issues I am trying to explore. The United States right now has the ability to destroy the world with our nuclear arsenal, but that does not mean we can achieve specific geopolitical goals. Power is more subtle than that. You can have the power to destroy, but it does not give you the power to reform or improve or build. So Michael and I are such big fans of Game of Thrones, to the point now where we have written uh, articles that basically start with that same question and then test whether or not this statement plays out as we would expect in the story. So my article is in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, originally published in 2014, but uh, republished last month with the final season. It argues that the dragons are actually nuclear weapons. But Michael, with Matthew Furman at Texas A&M University, have an entirely different opinion that they expressed in the Washington Post on April 12th, 2019. Michael, where did this idea uh, for your article come from? And kind of maybe you want to talk a little bit about that before we proceed and kind of why you decided to take this uh, task upon yourself. I mean, I'll be honest, it started at a bar. Uh, all good ideas do. Matt and I were at an academic uh, conference and during season seven, and we were talking about the, you know, Danny's invasion of Westeros and, and how it was going and the, and the silliness of the plot to get a white you know, north of the wall and trying to uh, trying to figure out what would happen next and got to talking about uh, international relations analogies to Game of Thrones and got into uh, weapons technology. Since Matt and I have both conducted academic research on issues surrounding nuclear weapons, issues surrounding conventional weapons, proliferation, those kinds of topics. And we thought the conventional wisdom essentially was this piece, your piece, that we both read in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And we decided that we thought there was more to the story and so set out before season eight to, to lay out uh, our perspective on the issue. But it was really your piece that got us thinking about it. Well, that's, that's really great to hear. One of the things I really liked about the article that you wrote for the Washington Post was you tasked your research assistants to look through every example of dragons as used in military activities in either the books or the television show, and then map that out. Maybe you, I don't know, I would love to see what your code set was for this particular work, but... It, 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 and before we go any further, let me just say, uh, Alex, Allie, and Lauren, thank you. Seriously, I have a great team of research assistants, and, and I ask them to do crazy stuff on occasion. 
Uh, but most of the time that crazy stuff is like find this obscure open source detail about some like cruise missile that you bear <laughs> that like nobody has heard of. And I, I emailed my, my undergrad RAs and said, hey, uh, is anybody like Game of Thrones? And uh, three of them wrote back almost immediately and they were like, <laughs> yes, why? And I described the assignment to them and they said it was afterward. Really what they said is why can't all the research assignments that you give us be like coding things about dragons? <laughs> uh, I would yeah, I'd have, a, I'd have a similar opinion on that. Did anyone get stuck having to read uh, Fire and I don't know if Fire and Blood, the uh, the latest Targaryen history book had come out to you yet. But I wonder if people as a, as a research assistant, if you'd like to be stuck with that or World of Ice and Fire, right. which is like the encyclopedia book. And anyone who gets stuck with that one? It, they had all read the books. I don't think they'd read Fire and Blood, but I, I actually think the internet had sort of fixed it at that point. Fire and Blood had already been integrated into the various sort of ice and fire wikis and, and that sort of thing. And so I think they free wrote off of the internet for the extended universe books. Okay. No, that's, that's great. That's certainly what I did because I had not uh, read the Duncan Egg stories and all of the other stuff before then. Um, but there's a lot out there, and there's also a lot of people who have written similar pieces to ours. Uh, on your side of the, the aisle, uh, Matthew Galt, uh, who wrote in Motherboard in August 2017 in an article called Dragons in Game of Thrones, Art Nukes, there at Air Force. Uh, that was a great uh, piece that, that Matthew had wrote. Uh, also another one, Michael Shurkin from the Rand Corporation wrote a piece in Scientific American, it also in August 2017, called Dragons, Nukes, and Game of Thrones. So pause the podcast, watch all the episodes, read these pieces, and then be prepared for what we're going to get into next, which I thought would be fun, is to talk with Michael Horwitz here and have a gentlemanly debate about this topic. And I really appreciate you being uh, game for this episode here. Uh, so here's what I thought would be fun. Uh, each side will have a chance to present their case on why dragons are or are not nuclear weapons or conventional air power uninterrupted. If anyone has been doing either policy debate in high school or college, they'll know this format, and I think we'll, it's kind of the, the spirit we bring to this. There'll be a little bit of slight cross-examination of each other, and then we'll, then we'll take what people say, and then we'll do some closing remarks here, and then we'll also try to leave some time at the end of this to do a little bit of geeking out about Game of Thrones, its treatment of international affairs and history, some of our favorite uh, moments and storylines, and maybe if we if we feel up to it, predictions for the end game of the show, since we've got two episodes left. All right, so last spoiler warning that I could possibly tell you, we are recording this right before the second to last episode, uh, before the show airs on HBO, and we're probably going to spoil most of the shows in the books. I'm going to spoil literally everything I can to try to make my point. Uh, excellent. Even, even things that are not even relevant, and just like, yeah, that plus this person dies. Okay, so we'll get into this now. Dragons are living, fire-breathing metaphors for nuclear weapons. I advance this case along two separate lines of reasoning. First, on a strategic level. Second, on a narrative level. First, on a strategic level, how wars are fought and won with dragons. Dragons do not have a monopoly on violence in the show and the book. We see prolonged conflicts fought conventionally without dragons, but I'll contend that dragons are best thought of in Game of Thrones as slow-moving, heavy bombers similar to B-52s that can be struck down with some creative defenses, 
but once unleashed, will utterly decimate an enemy's forces and cities at a speed and scope far, far beyond anything else in that world. The very definition of a nuclear weapon. Aegon the Conqueror used just three dragons to compensate for being completely outnumbered to unite most of the separate kingdoms. Of course, you know, as Michael noted in his Washington Post piece, I love this, 38% of the uses of dragons in the Game of Thrones universe were used in strategic bombing campaigns, such as Aegon the Conqueror melting Harrenhal Castle to ruin. Harold the Black thought this castle would be his legacy. Greatest fortress ever built. Tallest towers, the strongest walls. Look at it now, a blasted ruin. Do you know what happened? Dragons? Yes. Dragons happened. To me, this is as close as a nuclear attack you're ever going to get in this setting where castles equal cities. But one might ask, hey Tim, if dragons are nuclear weapons, and nuclear weapons primarily function in our world as a deterrent to conventional war and other nuclear attacks, which, you know, thank God, you know, how are dragons still nukes? I think that nuclear weapons function... You know, yes, mostly as a deterrent in our world today, but it wasn't always thought of this way. They used to be considered just large conventional bombs in the early parts of the atomic age by the U.S. Army and the Air Force. It took decades of work by concerned citizens, you know, and the emergence of a deliverable second strike from the Soviet Union with hydrogen bombs before the taboo against the use of nuclear weapons found solid ground. But nevertheless, as long as they existed, the power of dragons during the reign of the Targaryen kings prevented most threats to the crown. I do not want to discount over 150 years of relative peace in the Seven Kingdoms. Furthermore, much like nuclear weapons, and I think this is really interesting, dragons have limited military utility in war fighting when you're not trying to either destroy a city outright or fight in the open field. Look at the Dornish, who were able to resist Targaryen rule for decades before nuclear weapons, <laughs> I mean, uh, dragons, were not useful in fighting this insurgency. It took a political decision slash marriage pact to bring that part of the Seven Kingdoms into the fold. And to me, this sounds a lot like the debate that people had over the use of nuclear weapons potentially in the Vietnam War, which the Jason Group uh, determined in 1967 was a target-poor environment with diffuse supply lines and dispersed troops, similar to how the Dornish abandoned their cities and fought with guerrilla tactics. But I believe Michael's right. Mutual assured destruction has not been present in Westeros as evident in the fact that the Dance of the Dragons, the Targaryen Civil War, was fought with dragons against dragons. Uh, not much deterrence there. Uh, and the Night King in the show. He's got his own nuclear Viserion and took down the wall. But I think the major reason why dragons don't serve a mutually assured destruction or mad rule is either in the Targaryen Civil War there were too few of them to inflict enough damage on the other side to deter their use, or the Night King and Cersei, for example, they don't really understand the concept of deterrence because they don't have anything of value that they we could hold at risk. You know, the possession of nuclear weapons in our world doesn't automatically mean that you have deterrence against all attacks and kind of whatever you want to do on the international stage. You need the means to deliver the weapon to the target, communicate and demonstrate your intent to use the weapons, and protect your arsenal from attack. Now the Night King is on this cosmic quest to bring death and does not care about his zombie army, and Cersei has already set fire to her own city and hates her citizens. She's proven herself to be either an irrational actor or one who does not see a way out of her situation that could not involve fighting it out to the last person. Well, I would, would, would agree, that we have seen dragons deployed as conventional air power or close air support to ground troops as shown in the show, which is awesome because those scenes look great. It's important to not forget 
one critical factor. So far, Daenerys has chosen to hold back from embracing the fire and blood in her veins and unleashing the full power of her nuclear arsenal. She could decide to burn King's Landing to the ground in an hour, but her advisors have thus far been successful, again, thus far, in encouraging her to not look at that course of action. Well, we've got, we've got two episodes left. Finally, I think, and this is what to me uh, is really important, is on a narrative level, why I think dragons operate like nuclear weapons. So what role do dragons have in the overall story that George R. R. Martin or the showrunners on HBO are trying to tell? So I think the books and the TV show are first and foremost pieces of art, not documentaries or military field guides. So as the quote I read at the beginning of this podcast shows, George R. R. Martin is very interested in talking about rulers and power, what makes a good ruler, how can one, once on the Iron Throne, achieve Pacific geopolitical goals and wield that power to reform or improve or build? How do you create a better world? Like nuclear weapons in our world, dragons are not particularly very good at these tasks. I would argue that one of the central themes of Game of Thrones is that war sucks. You know, there are opportunities in war, for sure, to achieve personal glory. Sometimes war may be a necessary evil to fight ultimate evil, and the Song of Swords may be pleasing to some people's ears, but ultimately violence and war makes broken men of us all in the end. Characters who unleash violence and others will carry those scars with them for the rest of their lives. Violence it is a disease that affects our enemies, innocent bystanders, and ultimately oneself. And I think that thinking of dragons as a conventional air force doesn't necessarily do this message justice. Uh, and lastly, I would agree with the concluding section of your article, uh, which is where you say having the most destructive weapon in the land does not guarantee political victory. So I would argue that this is more or less the point that George R. R. Martin is making by deploying dragons as nuclear weapon analogs. Anyone claiming nuclear weapons are panaceas that will solve all of your foreign and domestic policy problems are as foolish as Serdantos, and he was an actual fool. As George R. R. Martin said in a 2014 interview, which I think was in response to my article, which if that's true, and I've heard that through the grapevine, this may be my ultimate thing I should put on my resume. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Pretty cool. Dragons are the ultimate weapon in the world of ice and fire. They're controlled by only a few people. You can win wars with them, win battles with them, but this does not mean that you can govern successfully with them, build a successful society and culture. In that sense, they are like nuclear weapons. We could wipe ISIS off the map tomorrow if we wanted to use our dragons. Still, when do you do that? Do you ever do that? What are the moral ramifications? What does that do to you? I rest my case, and I yield my time to my friend, Michael. Thanks. I mean, I mean that's persuasive. Should we just get a beer? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I want to hear uh, I want to hear the other side, because the article that you wrote and then that Matthew Galt wrote certainly lay out a very strong case for why we should think about these things in different ways. So here, here's where I would start, and that's... George R. R. Martin knows how to create an incredible fantasy universe that hundreds of millions of people have enjoyed. I know, well, I mean, what I have done obviously is less impressive by comparison, but I have read Clausewitz and Sunza and Thomas Schelling. And the point being that his vision of what these things are is different than the execution of that vision, since he's mm -hmm. not, in fact, an expert in international politics. And in execution... Even at their most destructive, I think dragons are used more as air power, even if they are talked about as weapons of mass destruction. This to me suggests that, you know, like maybe, uh, like maybe some Hollywood screenwriters should, you know, take some international relations classes more than it makes <laughs> dragons, you know, fundamentally weapons of mass destruction. So let me, let me lay this out and try to convince you 
But I want to start by saying that, like, you, look, your article really was was super interesting. The highest form of flattery in the world of ideas is when people actually read your stuff and even more when they engage with it. And your piece inspired me and Matt Furman, my co-author, to really dig in uh, and get some research assistance involved. So, so thank you for sparking this in the first place uh, and for having me uh, onto your podcast uh, today. And fundamentally, I think if we want to know what dragons are really like in the Game of Thrones universe, we can figure that out by evaluating what they do, not what people say they do. Hmm. So my research team got together and I had them dig in and collect information on nearly 100 battles across the Game of Thrones universe. Everything from the more recent Fire and Blood book to the to the canonical books, you know, the TV show, et cetera. They gathered data on a hundred battles and, or other sorts of, you know, use what we might call political violence or conflict, you know, writ large. Mm-hmm. And dragons were used in 26% of those battles. And, you know, of those, you know, of, of those battles, you know, those that had dragons used them basically in, in three ways. The first is that dragons were deployed to support troops on the battlefield. You know, we see this in the TV show most clearly in the Loot Train battle, or I guess what they officially called the Battle of the Gold Road for some reason. Loot mm-hmm. Train's way cooler name. It's season seven, episode four. Spoils of War, I think the episode exactly. was called. Yeah. Uh, Daenerys rides Drogon to destroy the Lannister forces that sacked Highgarden. But they're not used alone. They're basically air support for the Dothraki. So that's the first way that they're, they're generally used in practice. The second, you know, as you said, is they're used in strategic bombing campaigns. You know, that's the next highest category, 38% of the time. You know, you mentioned when, you know, Aegon the Conqueror burns, uh, Heron Hall. And I, I'll get back to why I think that that's not exactly nuclear, uh, in a second. But the third use is, uh, air to air combat. And that's about 13% of the cases. And you mentioned the Dance of Dragons. That's a, a Westerosian civil war that occurred about 175 years before the events depicted on the, the TV show. But I think in, there are a lot of differences actually between dragons and nuclear weapons that are illustrative. And I think to some extent, for me, what this speaks to in some ways is the poverty of our imagination when we hmm. think about international relations and that Nuclear weapons have had such a transformational effect on international politics, a genuinely transformational effect, that when we want to talk about anything, we gut check to nuclear weapons, because that's the analogy we know. But I think there are important differences here. The first is that dragons are a lot more vulnerable than nuclear weapons. They're, they're defense, there's not a defense against nuclear weapons, they're really defenses against the methods that deliver them. So I draw a distinction essentially between the delivery platform, that being your strategic bombing analogy, and the munition, essentially, or the missile, you know, whether we're talking about submarines or something, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Dragons essentially are a platform, and I guess fire maybe in that analogy is the is the munition. But uh, dragons, like bombers, are vulnerable to anti-air attacks such as scorpion artillery pieces. Here, actually, we have a difference between the show and the books. And the show version is actually better for my argument, even though I like it less. And that in the books, a Dornish scorpion bolt brings down the dragon Meraxes in the first Dornish war. And that is, that is a remarkable event in the history of Westeros. It's a, it's a lucky shot essentially that goes through the eye of Meraxes and that, uh, that, you know, that, that takes down, that takes down the dragon uh, and its rider, uh, one of Aegon's wives slash sisters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's this remarkable episode, but 
in the books, we're, we're led to believe that Dragon's skin is essentially impenetrable, that the only way to take one down with scorpion bolts uh, is, to, uh, is to use them, is to directly hit the eye. And we know this since there have been naval forces before the episode last week that actually used scorpion bolts to try to attack dragons. And in that case, that was a, Dor- that was a, a Dornish uh, navy. Uh, it, they spectacularly failed. Lots of you know, scorpion bolts went up. Mm-hmm. And uh, no dragons went down. But the TV show ha- has a slightly different interpretation on this. That's better for my argument, frankly, <laughs> because you know, Dusex Euron, the you know, superpowered pirate, uh, took down Rhaegal in the last episode with three shots of uh, you know, basically he was three for three from long range. Why Danny couldn't see him being you know maybe like a mile up in the sky or half a mile or even several hundred feet up in the sky, unclear. Cloaking. Skip the lack of realism. The point being that, it, it, you know, skip the fact, you know, how frustrating it is from, from a military strategy perspective. The point being it shows dragons is relatively easy uh, to take down uh, with the right equipment. That to me is very different than uh, nuclear weapons, which we think about as uh, fundamentally hard to stop uh, or impossible to stop as a, as a munition. Uh, you know, maybe you could try to stop the delivery vehicles for them. The notion that dragons are symbolically nuclear weapons, I think, relies on an understanding of asymmetrical technology and military history, where the only thing we really remember is the U.S. nuclear monopoly after World War II. Hmm. But, I mean, imagine how the machine gun looked to societies that didn't have firearms, or how air power might have looked to somebody with zero defenses. You know, imagine... You know, one side with an F-35 and the other side with big crossbow. You know, the F-35, slow speed, stubby wings. But, you know, that would have seemed transformational to a society that just had scorpion bolts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they'd hit an F-35 every once in a while if it was really low. Suppose one side has an A-10 and the other has scorpion bolts. Those would have seemed like nuclear weapons. But those are really different than nuclear weapons. Another reason why they're different, it takes multiple shots. You know, one nuclear bomb takes out Hiroshima. It takes multiple passes by dragons. You know, think about season eight, episode three against the Army of the Dead, when uh, Danny's on Drogon and basically is strafing the Army of the Dead. Or you, you see the same thing in the loot train battle. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can, you know, the dragon spews fire once and the battle is over. Dracarys. Even when you're trying to do something like burn Heron Hall, it takes multiple passes. So to me, I can buy the notion of dragons as potentially heavy bombers. Although in the book universe, I think they're actually a lot more maneuverable than that. They're more like multi-role fighters. Hmm. That might be too nerdy even for us. But, <laughs> uh, but, but taking the dragons as strategic bombers analogy, I think that makes them more like the conventional firebombing of Tokyo or Dresden. You know, and those... Those are horrific events, but it takes a lot of bombers and some time to do it. It's not an immediate one-shot kind of deal. And that, to me, makes dragons you know, fundamentally uh, very different than the nuclear weapons. And so given that the use of dragons at the end of the day looks more like air power, and in, front, in some ways mostly looks more like close air support than anything else, I think the analogy between dragons and nuclear weapons is only one that makes sense if the only technology we know about is nuclear weapons. But I think there are lots of other possible analogies out there, and it's more instructive, relatively, to look at how they're used rather than how they're talked about. And I'll stop there for now. Okay. 
Well, th- I think that that is a, a very, very compelling case. So for you, if the dragons were to be more like nuclear weapons, it would have to be that they breathe fire, you know, one good burst, and that kind of is a city gone, or a large part of the battlefield gone. So to you, is would that be one of the ways? Yeah, that'd be, I mean, I, I, I would think about them more in that way. I mean, I think the two things I get hung up on most, you know, one is right, is this notion of like one shot versus multiple shots. And I guess if we want to go like deep, we can talk about like, like Davy Crockett, like backpack nukes or like tactical, mm-hmm. nukes, you know, like whatever. I'm sure there's a rabbit hole there. Um, but I think the other thing is that I think, you know, dragons in some ways are platforms rather than bombs. I mean, they, mm-hmm. I mean, they're platforms that carry their own, you know, essentially like self fueling bombs or something but yeah uh that to me means that the more direct analogy is more like uh is more like air power and that's and that's fundamentally how they're how they're used i mean there's some instances we see in the game of thrones universe where where actors are say deterred from challenging the targaryens because they're worried about dragons like that, mm-hmm. that absolutely happens but it but they also are willing to face them on the battlefield. And, and in the Dance of Dragons, you certainly don't have deterrence. And I, I don't think it's because there's too few dragons. I mean, that's, you know, you, you end up with, with you know, dozens, some odd dragons, I think, throughout that, that are sort of on the battlefield in one way or another. Mm-hmm. The world of Westeros, at least, like, that's a lot. That is true, uh, yeah. For the size of their armies. So I want to ask you a little bit about, the, you mentioned the platform argument. And I think that that's interesting because to me, a nuclear weapon is uh, a device that goes boom, super critical boom, plus the delivery system. Like, I don't think of nuclear weapons, uh, you know, they're, they're warheads or bombs, plus the thing that gets them there. To me, you know, if you don't have those things, they're basically just, you know, they're very dangerous paperweights. So for me, <laughs> you're right, there's no defense against a nuclear weapon in our world. If you're at ground zero, duck and cover is not going to help you. Um, and there's no defense, I would say, against the same thing with dragon fire, which it seems in the show and in the books, it's something different. It's not, it's even hotter than, than wildfire. It's something that can melt stone. It's this category that people fear and conceive Right, there's of something magical about dragons. You know, they come from Valeria. The, right. There, there might be spells involved. There's something right. else. So the thing that I think is interesting to me um, is, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily discount that particular piece because I think, you know, you're right. A well-placed javelin here or there or a magic scorpion launching device system can disrupt the delivery of those things. But it'd be the same thing to me as if we are kind of moving back. We're not in the modern, most recent world where submarines are so hard to hit. So there really, there is no strong way to destroy those particular delivery systems. You know, I kind of think of dragons as you know, bombs plus delivery mechanisms in the early part of the the atomic age. So the idea in the Dance of Dragons that they would, you know, exchange nuclear attacks back and forth is kind of how I think maybe people thought of, well, like in the days of Dr. Strangelove, the idea that, you know, a bomb would, a bomber would take an X amount of time, hours to get to the next location. If you were just smart enough and you surprised your enemy and took out their forces while they were still, you know, getting caught with their, their pants down, you know, you can get there and you can win those wars. And it wasn't until later on where we kind of entered this situation of mutually assured destruction before that went away. So I think you mentioned a little bit about why uh, one shot kills of a city. To me, I think it's all relative, you know, in the, in the sense that you think about catapults with fire hitting a city would take... I don't know, days to burn a city down. Dragons can do that in, if we're talking three hours, to I mean, me that still about, is the think equivalent. Think about Cersei and Wild, I mean, I think Wildfire is probably like the chemical weapons of, mm-hmm. uh, of Westeros. And 
I mean, Cersei blows up the Sept of Valor, you know, pretty much, pretty much instantaneously. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you saw the the preview for the coming episode, but it, it sure looked like there might be some barrels uh, mm. in the in the Red Keep uh, kicking around. So who knows? Maybe we'll see some more. Yeah. The, I don't know. I think so. I think this. I think your point is really interesting. It actually speaks to me to something like I think about a lot. Like I I study nuclear weapons, but I I study but from the perspective of of thinking about the diffusion of military technology and the diffusion of military innovations. And so the nuclear weapons to me are, uh, are a case, just like carrier warfare is a case, just like um, combined arms are a case, you know, just like Prussian open order tactics are a case. You know, that's a railroads, rifles, telegraph in the late 19th century. And so, mm-hmm. and so to me, you, you almost have to split these things because the, the proliferation rates of different kinds of, of different systems is of, of, platforms versus uh, delivery vehicles can actually differ quite a uh, you know great deal you know bombers i think are a good example of that the you know a couple dozen countries at one point or another have had uh, a platform we would call a bomber and you know many of them uh, could you know put real bombs on it that could potentially you know cause serious damage mm-hmm. but that's very different than having a bomber with a nuclear weapon on it so it's not the bomber in and of itself that I think makes it a uh, a weapon of mass destruction or a nuclear device. It's the it's the weapon you put on it. Uh, I think this distinction is important because it helps us understand then when we're thinking about proliferation, uh, not just all right, can country X get a nuclear weapon? Like, can Iran get a nuclear weapon? Can I mean, I look, I mean, I guess North sure. Korea proved you could like put your nickels in a jar and get one, but what can they do with it? And to me, that's about that's about delivery, which I which I would distinguish. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I thought that that is that was that is really a good distinction, because um, when I thought about the when the sept of Baylor was destroyed, uh, it to me, it reminded me of like the Tsar Bomba, a kind of largely undeliverable mm. weapon, but a really big explosion. You know, you have it on the ground. Uh, it's almost right, like it's clearly the, not deliverable. You're absolutely right about that. It, it is. It could potentially if you get enough of those things and you bury them under a city and you and you have a, a small a small child uh, you know, light, the, <laughs> light, light the candle, you know, sure, then it will have that same strategic advantage difference. You know, like this, you know, the, to me, I, I think I quoted and I wonder if Thomas Shelley never thought this would happen. You know, I quoted Thomas Shelley in this article about dragons. You know, he conceived of what the difference between, you know, conventional weapon attacks and nuclear is the speed of which these things can happen. It eliminates the ability and the time for you to, to surrender. It, it, and also, I think the important thing here, too, is the indiscriminate destruction that takes place with, with dragons. And I think if you are talking about, you know, multiple passes, but it still only takes like an hour to destroy a castle or a city, in in these terms, it's kind of the closest we'll get without uh, being, you know... So what that, I, I think that piece is interesting because I think... In the in the universe of Game of Thrones, you can modulate the I think the precision. You know, think about when you know when Danny uh, you know first you know when Danny's you know when the dragons are, are starting to get to adolescent age and mm-hmm. she sort of like pretends to sell them. Or uh, think about after the loot train battle when she uh, burns Randall Tarly and and Dickon Tarly. The I think they've actually shown they've demonstrated that dragons can be used in a precise manner. It's uh, but but she can kind of um, it's or at least they're implying, you know, depending on what we think is going to happen next week, that like mm-hmm. she can dial that. 
yeah, I think a, a, dial a yield. Yeah, right, right. Except you're right. In some ways, we're talking about right, like a really extreme version of dial the yield. But the I think one of the interesting things about wildfire fire, just to go back to that, is that you you can't really do that in, in part because it might it, it might ju- it might not just burn out. It might burn in other directions. I mean, that was Tyrion's whole point uh, before the Battle of the Blackwater was how dangerous wildfire wildfire was and how uncontrollable uh, it was. Which is one of the reasons why we don't see con- chemical weapons being used as much uh, on the battlefield. Right. We don't know which way the wind will blow. Weapons aren't good battlefield weapons. Right, exactly. And it's not clear how you deliver wildfire either, right? Like you'd, I guess you'd need to like drop a barrel and then like drop a match on top of it somehow. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like how that would work from a battlefield perspective isn't clear. They're really only good as like a last ditch, like I will blow this car up. Mm-hmm. You know, I will blow this city up. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, I'm going to take my bat and ball and go home. Yeah, I think there was there is some example um, in the world of ice and fire, the encyclopedia book uh, for Game of Thrones, uh, which I actually really like. It's 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 written from the perspective yeah, of nice. a, a maester, and there's an example of a Targaryen king. So after the dragons are defeated, and he's and he's still trying, they're still trying to get Dorne to bring Dorne into the fold, and they're like, well, what we'll do is we'll just make a bunch of wildfire, build these giant platforms, these towers that will spit wildfire into the Dornish cities uh, and that'll be our versions of like mechanical dragons but they yeah. decided to build them in King's Landing and then march them south through a desert and they all broke and they all died yeah that's a terrible plan yeah um, do you think uh, before we kind of get into our closing remarks do you think that the dragons from your perspective of uh, you know an analyst in, in military history have been used strategically like if you were the Tyrion uh, of this world and you had the ability to use the painted table and come up with a better plan for how to use the dragons as if you want to as conventional air power how would you go about doing that in a way that's different than the show i mean i think in retrospect like thinking about the show like danny should have gone to king's landing immediately they had no scorpions at that point cersei wasn't ready for them you wouldn't have actually needed to i mean maybe you wouldn't have needed to burn down the red keep but there also weren't a lot of civilians in the red keep and i think given the precision Hmm. precision of dragons you could have probably I mean, this is a world that's been at war constantly, like even during the reign of the Targaryens, as the as the Fire and Blood book makes clear, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's essentially the civil there's constant civil war um, or, you know, and, and certainly low level political violence is, you know, ongoing like on the regular. It's not like if if a dragon showed up at the Red Keep and burned it down, that people would would say, oh, my God, we've never seen anything like this before. That's just mm-hmm. like a return to the old normal from that perspective. So I actually think the Tyrion's, I mean, Tyrion's made many mistakes in, in mm-hmm. season seven and eight. And hopefully we will eventually, hopefully there will be a story and an explanation for that. I think one of the key things here is that maybe he doesn't understand the ability to, uh, to modulate. Which is interesting because he really, on his resume, says dragon expert. You know, he read, he right. read all the books. He there was this. There's a rumor in the books that he's going to be the one that's going to finally make harnesses for the dragon riders. He might be one of them. You know that kind of right. stuff. Yeah. The, yeah. The I feel like the Tyrion is a secret Targaryen thing. Is I mean that that ship has sailed certainly for the for the TV show. I mean who mm-hmm. knows about the books. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I I am a. I'm a believer that I think that that theory works on a narrative level. I always ask that question: Is this this is theory? Is right. it cool? But does it also work for the story? And I think it might 
but it also might be a point where where there's a fatigue of too many Targaryen secret Targaryens out there in the books in the I don't know, we'll see um all right so let's do our uh, closing remarks here because I I, re- I enjoyed the conversation but I, I think uh, I'm convinced in some places but I, uh, I still have my case here so I I personally think that the analog and this is the one thing that's so important to me and you know I also interviewed uh, Michael Shurkin the author of one of the other pieces he was going to be on the podcast but he he's traveling right now and he, he one of his main cases that he made was you know dragons are not equivalent to nuclear weapons they're not going to be the exact here and there you're right they can be dialed down they could be used in these particular examples but you know as an analog of what does it mean when someone sees these types of military tactics being used and these these advantages and how people think about this as something that's uh, you get to the reaction that Jamie had, which is how do we possibly fight something like this? And the reaction you get to that, uh, you know, I, I don't think the the analog is perfect. It's not one to one, and I think I think the gods that George R. R. Martin is not writing a seven part treatise on the dangers of nuclear combat, uh, but I think he's really good at picking and choosing the things he wants to inspire him, whether it's elements of history, uh, other works of fiction, or nuclear strategy. So to me, I would certainly love to send George R. R. Martin to a nuclear strategy course at, at Perry World House for a while, have him audit one of your courses to improve that anal- analogy. He's more than welcome. Yeah, so I think that would be perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the nuclear themes are still there, and they make it really interesting to talk about for the fans of the show uh, and, and of the books and students of these history issues and nuclear policy issues. Because uh, to me, you know, nuclear weapons are not, they're not panaceas that solve foreign policy and military challenges. And I think that, as you're, you're certainly correct, that people have only the memory to think of something that's really powerful as a new. You know, you hear about that talked about quite often. I'm also the guy that wrote an article for the bulletin about how the Death Star is a nuclear weapon. So I'm just as guilty of any of these things as as anyone else. I feel like Death Star, you're closer. Yeah, probably. I mean, like Planet Killer, you know, like that's not bad. In, yeah, at least in, in spoiler alert for Rogue One, you know, they dial that down to, to city level destruction, which is kind of interesting. I did not know it could do that. Right. Um, but to me, on, on a strategic level of kind of what the message of like, these things are really powerful in certain examples of, of military tactics, but they're not so helpful in other types of things you're trying to do, which is like fight a counterinsurgency, whether it's in Dorne or Marine. You know, I think that level is super interesting as from a military and strategic side, uh, but they're also not very good at convincing people that your policies are right. At a minimum level, you can make that case that a, a lot of other really powerful weapons could make a similar case. But when you combine the narrative level, the message that George R. R. Martin's trying to say, which is, you know, dragons are a thing that could be used indiscriminately. And also, sometimes you can't really control it. Danny thinks about her own children, which she considers her, the dragons her children, after they start to eat the children of shepherds out in Marine. You know, she locks them up. She doesn't know what to do with them. She loses right. uh, positive control. Uh, on a new negative control on all of her different dragons. You know, I think that the, on a narrative level, dragons as nukes is really the place that this will be done justice. But I'm also really happy that the show uh, and the books deploy the dragons in scenes that make them look like more conventional air power because no one really wants to watch dragons melt stone for eight <laughs> seasons of a television show. Uh, maybe for like a one-off type thing. But yeah, so that's 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 my case and I'll, I'll stick to that. So I think the, I actually just want to pick up on a couple of things. And, you know, the first is, you know, your, your comment, what does it mean when people say these, you know, see these things, you know, thinking back to, to Jamie. I face them in the field. We can't beat them. We can't beat the dragons. I mean, that to me is more like seeing a bomber or an A-10, you know, not a nuclear weapon. So if you're in the mm. process of seeing a nuclear weapon, that means you're going to die. Yeah. Well, that probably means you're already dead. You know, and fundamentally, I think we've learned over the last, you know, almost 20 years that 
Uh, lots of military technology is not good for counterinsurgency. Most air power, tanks, aircraft carriers, submarines, et cetera, mm -hmm. all not good for counterinsurgency. So I'm not sure that's necessarily unique to nuclear weapons. And so to me, I think when you focus on what they actually do, they look more like conventional air power. And in some ways, as I'm thinking about this out loud, maybe more like pre-nuclear World War II air power, hmm. where you have you know, strategic bombing options, dive bombing options, close air support options, you know, those kinds of things. But I actually think there's a lot of truth to what you say at the narrative level in that I think Martin probably is thinking about nuclear weapons because when people, you know, the, the, you know, my, my critique before that, you know, we tend to reduce all powerful, you know, when we think about like, oh, this is like a super powered thing. Oh, it's like a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. That probably means that is what he was thinking about. And, you know, that is probably what some of the, you know, uh, you know writers involved in the show uh, are thinking about. And that makes that, uh, I think, powerful from a narrative level, even if, you know, when used in practice, I think they look more like air power. Yeah. And the type of story you would tell with just if we wanted to make these equivalents of nuclear weapons, that's just not that interesting. Right. The, the idea that, oh, well, this dragon, if it sneezes, that castle will be destroyed in a second. You know, that is not as compelling as... You add elements of danger and vulnerability to these things, and I, you know, I I really wonder in the books at what point are they going to make the dragons more vulnerable? To me, I think what's going to happen is that they're going to make the dragons vulnerable because someone's going to be able to steal one of them, right? And I think ultimately that will. It's funny, um, your the show makes your argument for conventional air power much stronger. I think we'll see. Hard to predict anything in these days. But I think the book will make the argument that dragons are more like nuclear weapons actually more of a stronger case because of oh, interesting. When, when the dragons are turned against her. Similar to what the Night King did with that dragon. That, I think, to me, didn't go anywhere other than the wall being destroyed. Right. Be in a situation where whether it's uh, maybe the dragon horn works or doesn't work, uh, that Euron is uh, having Victarion bring over. Or it's just some other place where... The words that the Night King knows how to warg or something because he's a former Stark and right. he can now take over a dragon. You know, things like that, I think, are probably going to be a case that analogy will be make a little bit more sense on, on different narrative levels. But, but we'll see. And I'm looking forward to seeing how the show ends in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. So separate from our discussion, now that now that we can get back to being friends here, uh, and separate <laughs> from, so I have a couple of different questions. You know, you spent time tasking your RAs with, you know, looking at Game of Thrones. Kind of why do you think as someone as yourself who, you know, thinks about these things on a, a, a regular basis, why is Game of Thrones and the books in the show, you know, such a rich source for international relations and military think pieces? Why does this work as opposed to, you know, any other kind of f fantasy out there that's that's generally pretty popular? I mean, because it's a it's a it's a great human story. It's a story about about family. It's a story about identity. It's a story about war. And it's a sprawling story that mm. that, you know, covers a continent and has significant political intrigue in that, you know, the the show has been criticized, you know, uh, you know, actually a fair bit at this point, I think, for not for leaning away from some of the fantasy elements uh, of the books. And I actually think that criticism, at least up to what we've seen so far, is reasonably fair. But that's because what they really want to talk about is politics. Mm -hmm. You know, they really want to talk about backroom deals. They really want to talk about alliances. You know, they really want to talk about assassination. They really want to talk about, 
you know, lots of the, you know, intrigue of politics. And so I think it's not surprising then that, that this has inspired a whole, a whole range of commentary by, uh, by, by people like us in that it's a, it's a well-written story. It's a great story, but it's also a big story about politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that makes it, you know, makes it interesting, I think, for a lot of us to take some of the tools that we have professionally and see how they work in this world. Have you had uh, much reaction to people who maybe aren't necessarily uh, steeped in, in nuclear policy or conventional air power policy? You know, oh, these are that's interesting. I had not thought of what conventional air power brings to a, a military conflict. Because I think that's one of the things I like a lot about uh, talking about these topics with popular culture, because sometimes the show writers and the books and the authors and stuff will think about these things, but also they're very good teaching tools. It helps to get people interested in your topic, and then you can then wow them with, you know, the rest of the why that matters. Right. No, I mean, I think it's, I mean, one of the things that I think has been, is fun about writing a piece like that is that, I mean, look... there are a lot more people like on my Facebook page that uh, that, that probably read that than you know read you know most of the like even dorkier academic stuff mm-hmm. I'm normally writing. And but I actually think it's important conceptually for academics to to try to you know bridge the gap to the policy world and mm-hmm. to try to you know to try to you know use our insights to understand the world around us. I mean, often that means applying academic insights to conventional political things, but. Hey, a popular fiction story that, you know, we you know world is transfixed by right now. It's as good as any. Yeah, and I can I can say that your article and line of argument is is working on my friends. I shout out to my friend Eric who was on one of our podcast episodes where we talked about different kinds of examples of atomic alcohol, alcohol that has <laughs> nuclear themes and history or puns or things. Even he messaged me that said, "Hey Tim, I think uh I think I'm convinced by this argument. We need what, what, what are you going to do about this, uh, your your particular piece? So we'll see what he says after this. Um, sure, yeah, absolutely. What, do you think um, the dragons, well, I guess <laughs> which one's left up now, Drogon, do you right. think he will survive the entirety of the show? And then in terms of the books, do you think the dragons will make it all the way through the end of the story from either a military standpoint or from you know kind of what you think the narrative is going to go to? I personally think they are yeah. not. Yeah, I mean, I... I think I think it's more likely they'll survive in the books than they will, or at least some of them will survive in the hmm. books than in the than in the TV show. Although it's tough to see the scenario though right now, in which Drogon. I mean, maybe a Scorpion Bolt takes out Drogon next week, mm-hmm. but you know this coming Sunday. But that, that would that's less likely. I I have an instinct that Drogon won't survive, but I don't really have. But it's 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 tough for me to imagine the the mechanism for them that and so maybe they figure out a way to uh you know bring him somewhere else or you know i i I think the uh i mean maybe the show ends with like danny on the iron throne and drogon patrolling but it doesn't seem like that's where we're headed makes me think that drogon's probably you know not going to be hanging around king's King's landing for all that long I i think it'll be a really good test for my um belief that well if george r martin is writing a largely you know, anti-war story, and I and I get that idea from uh, one of my favorite uh, Game of Thrones podcasts, which is the called the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, uh, which is done by uh, Stefan Sasse, who's a scholar uh, of literature in in Germany, plus uh, Sean T. Collins, who writes for the Rolling Stone on Game of Thrones, and they make a really compelling case for why George R. R. Martin is writing essentially, you know, not a hundred percent anti-war narrative because he 
he was a conscientious objector, but still believed that he would have fought against the uh, Nazis. But you know that if it's a good test for my idea that dragons are the equivalent of, of nuclear weapons in this anti-war narrative if the show ends with the dragons surviving or not. So whether it means that they meet a, a sad end uh, in the show or the books or, you know, how, how that ends up going. So if, if, if she is on the Iron Throne and there is a dragon circling, that'll be, a, a, a I think, a pretty strong case for why the show is not trying to go on this line. I have this weird prediction where I think the, sh- the dragons will die, but the one of the last shots of the show will be showing some kind of hidden cache of dragon eggs somewhere in a nest. Sure. Uh, you know, like, oh, what's going to happen next? Yeah, I could totally imagine that. Yeah, dear God, George R. R. Martin, if you are listening, I know lots of people say this, but please, please finish those books. That, that, that'd just be terrific. Right. If you feel comfortable and it's working out well, do it. And then, uh, you know, also maybe put a footnote or here or there about why dragons are actually nukes and why. Would be good for, my, <laughs> for my case. Um, all right, so we usually do on this podcast is we have a consistent rating system. It's usually through a one through five rating, but we also like to tailor it since we get super critical about the content. I like to tailor the scale of what it's on. So for this one, you know, we'll keep it simple. One out of five dragon eggs because one dragon egg will be good enough for, to provide you with cheap transportation and companionship during the long night. But a whole nest of eggs will give you the what you need to, to win the Iron Throne. So for you, you know, one out of five, how would you rate the show overall in terms of your... Uh, fandom and joy. I mean, I don't, I don't see how it could be anything but a five when I think about the amount of time I have now spent, you know, mm-hmm. reading the books, you know, watching the show, you know, like if, if time in some ways is our most precious commodity and there's lots of media out there to consume my very sincere frustrations with season eight, episode four uh, mm-hmm. aside, the show has been unbelievable in the way that it has, like, like all great shows do in the way that it is, is really brought people together. And it, at least right now is the, is the only show like that that it feels like everybody's watching so five yep. out of five for me i i don't disagree at all uh five and out two of five enthusiastic thumbs up i think even even for the any issue that i have with certain plots you know re-watching it recently before this season started uh one it was really fun because i knew i was going to do a podcast episode on it and that i've written for this before so it makes just sense like time-wise oh well this is a this is a career write-off this is a business um, right yeah obviously clearly yep yeah, that's that was justification I used for the wife, anyways. Uh, who, <laughs> who who likes Game of Thrones? But I think it's tired of me talking about nukes during the episodes. Fair um, but but just overall, I think uh, the show. When you rewatch it, the scenes you don't like, you just kind of skip forward. And I think there's enough there that makes it uh, a five out of five for me. Uh, and you know, another thing we tend to do on the podcast episodes is if people like the content we're talking about, and they like Game of Thrones, for example you know, some recommendations for people to check into additional things. So I've got three quick ones. One, a movie that I have uh, saw in the theater a long, long time ago, but still really like uh, it. It oddly holds up, not perfectly, but it, I like it, is uh, Reign of Fire, which is a 2002 movie with... Oh, wow. The Matthew McConaughey. That, that, yeah. you really went deep in the vault for that one. So that one's fun. It's about... That, that movie was enjoyable. I'm not sure I would call it good. No, but it's... It is weird because one, the, I think the dragons look pretty good for 2002, and they are have a little bit of this this interesting like I want to say they're drawing on like the movie Threads or uh, the day after in terms of some of the imagery of a post-apocalyptic sure. dragons burning down everything because they need to eat ash or something like that. But it is kind of fun. I recommend people check it out and then maybe forget about it. But I I for some reason can't seem to kick that. Um, <laughs> 
Two other podcasts I like. Podcast is called the War College Podcast. I'd mentioned Matthew Galt previously. Uh, I was I came on his podcast in September 2017 to talk about the kind of the same thing we did, uh, but from his perspective of writing that article about why dragons are more like sure. A10s. Uh, so check that one out. That one's a good one. It's called What Game of Thrones Teaches Us About Nuclear War. But I also recommend people listen to uh, what's probably going to be a few episodes left of the Citadel Dropouts podcast by Laura Hudson and Spencer Ackerman. Yeah, that's a great one. Excellent podcast on IR and national security issues represented in Game of Thrones. So people should check that one out. I enjoy that one quite a bit. Um, anything you recommend that people should check out dragon wise or just maybe another good show that that handles IR issues or the issues that you care about? I mean, it isn't well? like IR issues or anything, but I mean, e- even though I've never met them and probably really will, I feel like Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion at the ringer are like basically my friends for like yeah. all the time I've now spent with them between like talk the thrones and binge mode and, you know, and whatever. And I think the, like what the, what they have done in covering the Game of Thrones universe is incredible. I think that the same is true actually for uh, for Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair, whose hmm. articles are incredible and who the multiple podcasts that she does every week, like uh, like Cast of Kings is the one that I um, uh, listen to. Is uh, that, that stuff's excellent? Yeah, th- terrific, Michael. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, talking for about an hour and a half about dragons and nukes and conventional air power. Uh, thanks very much. Where can people find uh, some of your some of your stuff? Maybe you want to drop your Twitter handle so people can can read more about what you what you do on a daily basis. Absolutely, I am at MC Horowitz on Twitter, and if you follow me, I guarantee you tweets about Boston sports, mm-hmm. military innovation occasionally academic international relations and of course game of thrones terrific uh, I, I know i'm going to be following that and we'll like to see what you're going to task your ras with next uh maybe <laughs> maybe rain of fire i don't know to see if anyone's interested all right all right i'll ask them all right michael thank you very much uh for coming on the show and i look forward to to staying in touch and seeing what other future writings you have on game of thrones or otherwise yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks, and thanks one last time for 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 inspiring a bunch of people to think about think about the, this topic of of dragons and, and their equivalent out there in the military world. Excellent, yeah, and uh, thanks to George R. R. Martin for getting us all uh, together for this, and hopefully in the future we can maybe come back and talk about the winds of winter and how dragons are portrayed in that. We can only dream, right? Let's hope. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us what we got wrong, dragon-wise or nuke-wise, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. I'm on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. We're also on Facebook, and I even check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, always feels good to see five-star reviews talking about how much you enjoyed the program, helps to grow the show. Uh, don't want to do that. The next time you're watching Game of Thrones with your friends, Ask them, hey, does that dragon look like a nuclear weapon or an F-35 to you? And then point them in the direction of our podcast. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Super Critical.